Welcome to Hartnell Worth Watching, where in between seasons of Doctor Who, we're exploring the films of the first Doctor, William Hartnell. For the first season, we watched Carry On Sergeant, the first of the long line of Carry On films. This time, we're watching the film Hartnell did a year after Carry On Sergeant, 1959's The Mouse That Roared. I'm your host, and before internet porn, I like to spend my spare time in the forest during mating season. My co-host is Guy, who I have to say looks suspiciously like a duchess I once knew. <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So, do you have any connection to this film? Not a big one. I I remember it uh, from youth. I don't know if I ever actually saw it, but I, when you first mentioned the possibility of doing a show about it, I think I was able to describe the whole premise of the film, which I... I think maybe one of my parents actually described the film to me at some point in my childhood. <laughs> and it was always being advertised during the 70s. Uh, there'd be some station showing a rerun of it. So somehow I absorbed the <laughs> at least the basic concept well, of it. And, and what you're saying is, is going to be evidence in my conclusion when we get there. But, uh, ah, right. We'll hold off on that. <laughs> My memory is, as a kid, I remember hearing about this all the time. It was sort of mm -hmm. held up as this hilarious thing. And again, people would talk about the concept, you know, and, and you know, it's not a spoiler for us to say, because they, they say it pretty much in the first few minutes, you know, the whole idea is that this tiny little country is bankrupt. So they decide to declare war on the U.S. so that the U.S. will win and then pay them reparations, right? And that's your, <laughs> that's your concept. Yeah. And. Actually, very similar, as we'll see, to the producers, right? Where the concept of the producers mm -hmm. is they have to put on a, f a play that is so bad that it'll fail, and then they'll make lots of money. <laughs> yeah, uh, they have to, have to get a guaranteed failure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was surprised to see Rotten Tomatoes has a 90% approval rating from critics. Mm -hmm. So it's got to be good. <laughs> Let's see what we think. Yeah. I noticed I complain a lot about Doctor Who and being full of filler and all that. And I'll say whatever else we may end up concluding about this movie, in some ways there is some stuff that's filler, which we'll get to, but it's constantly doing something. I mean, taking the notes for this movie was just page <laughs> after page after page. So even though some of the stuff arguably could use some editing, still at least they put a lot of stuff in it, so I'll give them that. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Well, and it is it is a very short film. It's like 80 minutes, mm -hmm. 80 or 82 or something. I'm not even sure, except for maybe some kid's animated film. I'm not even sure I've seen the film that short before. I may have some comments on your comments as well, but again, let's, All right. let's head in so we can get to the point where we're talking about it. All right. So we start out with the Columbia logo, which is a woman holding a torch aloft. And at first it seems like she's a drawing, but then she starts moving and turns, she's, turns out she's a real person and turns out there's a little mouse running around her legs and she runs off. So yeah, with, lifts her skirts and runs away. <laughs> start out with a bit of humor. And then we head into animated credits, you know, where there's some kind of cartoon going on in the background while the credits go. And I have to mm. say, that's an old tradition that I enjoy every oh, once yeah. in a while, you know, someone like Pixar will do it. I kind of like it when live action films 
do that. Oh, sure. And we see in the credits that we've got both William Hartnell and Leo McKern. So it's a two for one for this podcast. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't even spot Leo McKern until I looked up the movie on IMDb after I'd watched it. I didn't recognize him at all. Interesting, because he's not, he doesn't look that different, I'd say, than what we saw in The Prisoner. But it is, you know, a few years, it's not quite a decade earlier than The Prisoner. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, we get a narrator, and the narrator says, Ladies and gentlemen, for reasons you will soon understand, the makers of this motion picture ask you not to divulge what you are now about to see to any living person. Thank you. So, again, starting off with lots of jokes. And then we're introduced to Grand Fenwick, which is the smallest country anywhere on the globe, somewhere high in the French Alps. And I didn't get this joke, did you? They said, and therefore the only English-speaking country in Europe. Well, because it was founded by that English duke who, who came over and bought up the property. So are they not including England in the concept of Europe? Maybe that's just something I'm missing culturally. Well, maybe they're just talking of continental Europe. Oh, yeah, so, okay. The English think they're above that sort of thing. <laughs> See, to me, all that stuff over there is Europe, so. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a British-made movie also. Yes. Yeah, very British movie. And Grant Fenwick is ruled by a duchess who's beloved by all our subjects, and we get our first sighting in a car going along of Peter Sellers playing the duchess. So he plays, uh, we didn't mention this in the intro, Peter Sellers plays three different roles in this movie. He had sort of a, you know, career of playing multiple roles in movies, I think most famously in Dr. Strangelove. I was trying to think if he had played multiple roles in that, and all I could think of was Mandrake, but, uh, but it's been years since I saw it. So, well, he played the Henry Kissinger character and he played the president. Oh, and he was Dr. Strangelove himself. Yeah. Yeah, That's the Henry Kissinger guy, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's right. He was Merkin Muffley, too, of course. Jeez. And, you know, uh, spoiling, the, spoiling it if we ever do that film, but also he was supposed to play the role of Slim Pickens. Oh, um, no kidding. Who ended up riding the rocket down at the end. Right. And my recollection, and this is from ancient history, so I, I don't know how accurate I am. My recollection <laughs> is he was so stressed out by all the work he was having to do on the movie that he was going to have a nervous breakdown, so they had to give one of the roles to somebody else. Mm, yeah. yeah, three rolls is enough, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> so next we are at Fenwick's Parliament, and we see the second Peter Sellers character, the hereditary prime minister, which, who the Duchess calls Bobo. <laughs> <laughs> now we see the third Peter Sellers, so they get them all in right away. And he's playing the forest ranger, Dolly Bascom who we see ineffectually trying to scare away a little fox that's just staring at him and not scared at all. And then we pull back and discovered that part of the reasons he's not scared is because Tully has caught himself in the trap that was intended for the fox. Yeah. And so we get a sense early on that Tully's not the most competent guy in the world. (laughs) And it turns out, even though he obviously is not the most manly of men, he also heads up the Grand Fenwick army, which is composed of longbow archers. (laughs) Yeah. And they do, uh, even though they've only got a few square miles of land, they do, uh, practice their archery. Yeah. I think it's about a little over 15. So four yeah. by four country. Basically. basically the size of San Francisco. Hmm. 
they do throw in a funny little explanation or they acknowledge that all these characters look alike. <laughs> we see this statue, which was also based on Peter Sellers of that founder. And they said he was in all, every possible way, the father of his country. Apparently <laughs> <laughs> so, he got around. And we learn that Fenwick's economy is based on its one export, Pinot Grand Fenwick, a wine. And that was uh, very popular in America and, and they were doing just fine and everything was going great. But then in 1959, a California wine grower <laughs> made an imitation wine and they showed the bottle and literally they've just painted out one of the letters. So it says Grand Enwick. <laughs> <laughs> they put it out for cheaper and took away the market. And so now Grand Fenwick is in big trouble. And so our story begins. Given that the country's now in an economic crisis, we see the parliament loudly fighting over what to do. Everyone's yelling at each other. And we get our first Hartnell sighting. <laughs> He's the marshal of the court. And, you know, <laughs> I feel bad for him. I mean, he was getting to work with Peter Sellers here, so he can't complain too much. But, you know, he had just the year before done Carry On Sergeant. His whole career was him getting cast in Sergeant-style roles, usually. Mm -hmm. So that's why they put him in this one. And he just, you know, gets to do the Sergeant thing again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I will say he is, uh, he is woefully underused in this movie. I mean, yeah. uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't get a lot of good meaty stuff to do. Yeah, he's sort of the adult supervision for Tully as they go along. So then, <laughs> yeah. Usually the voice of reason. And we get our Leo McKern sighting. He's a member of parliament. And I'll just say right up front, you want to talk about Hartnell being wasted. Leo McKern was really wasted. I mean, <laughs> they did nothing with him. I don't even know why he was here. He contributed absolutely nothing to the story. Yeah, he's uh, he's Benter, I think the name is. He's the leader of the, the loyal opposition. And pretty much he's just a sidekick to Bobo throughout the whole show. Yeah, really, he's just there for Bobo to talk to, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, so, and and what's disappointing about that to me is that as the leader of the opposition, they could have done something with that, right? They could have had some mm. fun with them debating some things or, or whatever. Yeah. They've sent numerous protests about the fake wine to the U.S., but they haven't gotten paid any attention to, and it's probably complicated by the fact that Grand Fenwick has never officially recognized the U.S. <laughs> so they send their complaints through Monte Carlo. <laughs> and uh, so somehow along the way, the U.S. doesn't seem to be paying attention. <sighs> but the Prime Minister, Bobo, has a plan. <laughs> There's only one way out, and we've already said it. <laughs> Our situation is indeed desperate. We stand poised on the brink of disaster. There is only one way out. War. We must declare war on the United States. <laughs> but we could never win such a war. Of course not. But we could win the peace. I've given this a lot of thought, gentlemen, and I'm perfectly positive I am right. You must remember, the Americans are a very strange people. Whereas other countries rarely forgive anything, the Americans forgive everything. And of course, they couldn't win the actual war, but they could win the peace. By being defeated, the U.S. will flood them with reparation funds. And he has a fun little quote here. We declare war on Monday. We are defeated on Tuesday. And by Friday, we will be rehabilitated beyond our wildest dreams. <laughs> <laughs> and figures they only need about 20 men to invade the U.S. And they'll have it be led by Tully. And he really insists on this. Nobody else wants to send Tully because Tully's incompetent. You know, the Duchess doesn't want to send him. The Parliament doesn't want to send him. But the Prime Minister really insists on it. And if they're aiming to lose the war, he, he's the right guy to send, you would think. Yeah, yeah. 
And the prime minister said, look, all he has to do is get his men to the U.S. And once they land without visas, they'll be arrested. And <laughs> that's all there is to it. But to be safe, they'll send Hartnell, whose name is Will Buckley, with Tully to take care of him. And now we see a dramatic document. War is declared. It's their declaration of war, literally. And they put it together in a very fancy manner. And they mail it to the U.S. <laughs> and uh, they use extra postage just to be safe. <laughs> And then the prime minister and Leo McKern drink to our glorious defeat. <laughs> and Tully shows up and he doesn't want to lead this effort as it's the forest mating season. And also he gets seasick, but they insist that he do it. So Will and Tully need to gather an army of 20 people. So they go out to the courtyard where apparently people just hang around <laughs> and ask for volunteers. And Tully appeals to the men of Fenwick. He tries to do his St. Crispin's Day speech for Henry V. <laughs> Men of Fenwick, do you love your country? Yes! When you hear the name of Grand Fenwick, do your heart swell with pride? Yes! And if your country calls, will you rush to enlist? No! no. Oh. <laughs> and so he says he's not very good at this, and Will, you know, Hartnell, decides to take a try, and everyone just laughs at him. But then he turns on the Hartnell sergeant mode, <laughs> snaps them all to attention. But they still, when told that they're about to march off to war, all just leave. Uh, and I feel like this scene got cut short because he's like, well, I'm going to go show them and, and starts saying some sergeanty stuff and walking off. And we never see what happened. Like, it seems like there should have been some jokes here or something that resolved this. Mm -hmm. But we just go on to the next scene in the courtyard and we've got 20 guys standing there in chainmail uniforms. So we do get a resolution just by virtue of the scene change. Right. Right. It just felt like even the way they shot it, cause he, he sort of, they sort of cut in the middle of him saying something. So I, I, you know, I may be wrong. It just felt like they had something else there and decided to yeah, drop it. Could be. And the, the chainmail is funny cause I, I, it, the chainmail plays a big part in the whole movie as we'll see. I didn't notice until toward the end of the movie that it's just a uh, fabric, right? It's just a pattern on fabric. They didn't actually bother to no. have the actors wearing actual chain mail. <laughs> okay. I didn't, uh, I didn't spot that, but it, uh, much it more sense. comfortable for the actors. Well, <laughs> oh, sure. More economical too. <laughs> Which probably played a bigger <laughs> role in comfort. <laughs> so, uh, these guys are in the courtyard in chain mail and they all have a bow around their their shoulders and there's a band playing and leo mckern and the prime minister bobo are giving them a farewell and the prime minister assures them that the government has set aside money for their return fare home if necessary <laughs> <laughs> and the duchess I think he says that sort of a sotto voce you know? yeah <laughs> he drops the <laughs> yeah the if uh, the duchess sees them off the soldiers march away in uniform each carrying a suitcase of some sort and once they're out of the square and, and away from the town, they all march behind some bushes while wearing their uniforms and the music is going. And then one second later, they march out in regular street clothes. And I think this was done just for the purpose of this visual gag, because for the entire rest of the movie, they're in their uniforms. So it's not like they actually switch to their street clothes in the movie. Yeah, you know, I, I thought when I saw that, I thought, oh, they're going to they're gonna get over to the america and they're gonna infiltrate you know try to look like ordinary folks and then spring the trap when the time is right but um yeah they never do anything with it which uh 
is something that happens with some regularity in this movie. <laughs> we'll get to that. And they head for the bus stop because, you know, you got to get there somehow. <laughs> the bus stop has destinations of Italy, France, Switzerland, and Holland. They get on the bus headed to Marseille and get on a boat there uh, in Marseille. And we switch to Washington, D.C. in the State Department. And there's a bureaucrat here. I guess he's the secretary of something. He, he plays a part later in the movie. And he's opening his mail. And he receives their declaration of war. <laughs> and he just assumes it's a joke from the PR department. And he tosses it. And this bureaucrat is named Chester, I think, which is only important because he gets briefly mentioned much later. Yep. So the boat is headed to the U.S. and we get some fun little drawings of, you know, the, that old fashioned kind of when you're showing travel across the world, except they don't, <laughs> they don't animate these. They're just, uh, still shots, which is a little funny because you usually you get the little dot going across the screen. Oh yeah. On their way to the U.S., the soldiers are, and it's a really little boat, and the soldiers are doing exercises. They're not an impressive lot. <laughs> and we have a theme here. Tully spends all of his time at the railing being seasick and, you know, presumably throwing up. And he spends all of his time there. So he then switch, and there's this big storm and huge amounts of rain coming down, and it's night. And he's still out there, and Hartnell is there sort of helping him not fall over the edge. <laughs> And now we get the next big plot point here. <laughs> we see the uh, newspaper spin in, you know, again, another thing I, I like spinning newspapers. Oh, sure. The New York Daily Record headline says, Air Raid Drill Today. And the subhead, which I love, President Announces New Super Bomb. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, definitely what you should do is announce your bomb ahead of time. <laughs> yeah. And then we're aboard the Queen Elizabeth and we see a couple of officers there. Now, this is just a set. It's not the actual Queen Elizabeth, but later we get some shots of Queen Elizabeth, and I was reading up mm -hmm. in Wikipedia on this, and it turns out it was just a coincidence that where they were filming this in England, I think it's called Shepparton, the Queen Elizabeth happened to be there, <laughs> so, mm. so they just incorporated it into, into the film. Ah, that was handy. So aboard the Queen Elizabeth, a couple officers are on the deck discussing the fact that it's just been announced that New York is closing ports in one hour and everyone will be required to do a bomb drill and New York is going to be deserted. It's just kind of funny that everybody around the world would get a one hour notice that New York is being shut down. <laughs> and I uh, can't see where this is going. <laughs> New York being shut down. And uh, they also talk about the fact that this bomb that's being worked on is called the Q bomb. And apparently it makes the H bomb look like a firecracker. So, you know, that we get this shot of this really, really huge Queen Elizabeth boat going along and our little boat with the soldiers crosses in front of it and goes past and it's, you know, Queen Elizabeth, apparently, I mean, it, it, I think the implication is they were going to New York cause they've now like turned around since New York is going to be closed and they see that this little boat is going toward New York. So using a bullhorn. One of the officers tries to tell them that New York's closed and they must stay away. <laughs> and in response, they send a barrage of arrows <laughs> toward the officers. So, <laughs> you know. yeah, that's cute. Unfortunately, they're not real good shots, at least <laughs> yeah. not at that range. Yeah. As we'll see, there's like one point in the movie when they need to be, <laughs> they are good shots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So as the little boat approaches New York, you know, Tully is using binoculars and looking over to the city and he can't see anyone to surrender to. So he's concerned how they're going to surrender. 
And they land, and we get our next little little visual gag. It turns out that their invasion map of New York is Cook's Guide to New York, a tourist map. And we get a lot of still shots of an empty New York. I think these are just, you know, very early morning shots of New York. Yeah. But there's one where they totally cheat. And maybe you wouldn't notice because it goes by pretty quickly. But if you pause as I did, <laughs> one of the shots, so everything is, everything's empty. And when we see cars, they're, you know, just parked on the side of the road and they're empty and everything. But one of the shots is a normal shot of New York with a lot of cars right there and people are in the cars. <laughs> so it doesn't fit the theme. I, I don't know why they chose to use this one. Maybe they just didn't have many options available to them or something. Well, I I missed that one, so they probably figured that most of the audience would be as alert as I was. <laughs> and now we get soldiers walking in front of green-screened New York photos. You know, it's clear that they yeah. weren't going to pay to send everybody to New York. Yeah. Now, they, they did have some shots that looked like live shots of them in New York, so I'm not sure if they just really did the green screen well. I mean, there were many of them, but. There were a few where it looked like they were actually on the city streets. At least it looked that way to me. Um, yeah, but, I think that was all done in Shepparton. So I think that okay. it's just a combination of photos and then them, you know, creating sets. Oh, okay. Well, the 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 ones that are obviously green screen are really obviously green <laughs> yeah. screen. I mean, uh, <laughs> just they they just they look yeah. out of proportion. You know, like the mm -hmm. size of the men is not right for the picture they're standing in front of. Right. And we often think like, oh, you know, that's just the state of effects of the time and everything. But it's not necessarily true. I mean, it was 10 years later, but only like 10, maybe nine years later, they did 2001. 2001 has mm -hmm. amazing special effects that still hold up today. So it was really just about how much effort you were going to put into it, right? And, yeah. you know, this is a light little comedy, so. <laughs> oh, sure. There's probably financial issues as well yeah that's okay i i don't hold that against the movie too much <laughs> now there's a lot of jokes in the movie that don't work for me but i did like one of these which is yeah. they're walking along and all of a sudden you hear this squeaking and it turns out that tully every time he walks is squeaking and then hartnell figures out that tully's chainmail has gotten rusty and it's supposed to be really mm. funny and i'm like huh? okay <laughs> but <laughs> That's, uh, that's, uh, my reaction to a whole lot of the jokes in this movie. Yeah. It's, uh, it's cute. <laughs> yeah. But then they have one I like, which is totally steps on gum. And one of the soldiers yells out germ warfare as he's <laughs> picking up his foot. <laughs> yeah. Which also, by the way, is kind of true, especially if you've ever been in a case where you put your hand underneath a, a chair or something in a, you know, no, someplace you're at yeah. and somebody has gum under there. Yeah. <laughs> um, Oh, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> never pleasant. So everything has been, you know, silent, no people. But then they walk on a grate that's above a public shelter where actual people are hanging out and they can hear them. There's music. <laughs> it turns out it's kind of weird that in there's a shelter in New York, you know, because everybody's got to be in a shelter. And this is all hip 50s teens doing hip hop dancing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think it's more sock hop dancing. Yeah, that's 50s, true. Yeah. <laughs> I can't keep track of the trends here. Uh, but there's no adults in the crowd. There's no parents. It's all just these these teens or, you know, actors who are 30 years old playing teens uh, <laughs> dancing around to the radio. Yeah, and at it looks first, like they're having fun anyway. Yeah, and at first our soldiers think that they're cowards who are hiding from them. <laughs> <laughs> 
But pretty quickly, Will, you know, Hartnell being the voice of reason, finds a newspaper. There's actually the newspaper we saw earlier with the headline and the story that explains everything. And they've got a front page article and totally reads through some of it. So it might become important later in the story. <laughs> and it explains that the bomb was designed by noted scientist, Dr. Alfred Kokens. So it could come into play and that he's at the uh, New York Academy of Physics. Institute of Advanced Physics. You're right. Institute of Advanced <laughs> Physics. Don't want to get the institution wrong. <laughs> Tully says they shouldn't ruin New York's alert. They should be polite and also shelter. <laughs> so they want to surrender somewhere where they can shelter. And Tully believes he knows where there's an arsenal we can go to. He uses the map. It's across Central Park from them. And then we see a decontamination squad truck um, go by somewhere. So that might come into play also. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And now we're, we see the New York Institute of Advanced Physics, and there's a professor and his beautiful daughter, Helen, who are tweaking with a bomb that looks exactly like a football. So uh, I, I did want to mention here that Helen, that, uh, that might be a uh, kind of an allusion to uh, Helen of Troy mm. you know, being the crucial to the war and all that, although she, she does, really doesn't, well, I guess. Yeah, she, she does, does play a role, or at least tries to play a role. Is that we'll see. And so the bomb starts to buzz and the buzzing is designed into it. It's a warning apparatus and the bomb shocks you if you touch it. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's something that the professor just installed. Uh, and it's, it's something that's supposed to warn you if the bomb's getting too unstable, you know, if it's Mm -hmm. being jostled too much. And bizarrely. The professor is completely unaware that all of New York is sheltering or that there's an alert and that it's due to his work. Now, by alert, it's not that it's not like they're saying, oh, my God, there's a bomb that's going to go off. The whole idea here is that they know this bomb is coming. It's supposed to be finished in a couple of weeks. And they want everyone in New York to get used to sheltering, which yeah, is it's a little it's disturbing. A drill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's a drill. And, and the professor just has no idea that any of this is going on. And his, his daughter has to bring him up to speed. And then they did have civil defense drills in the 50s. I don't know if they shut down whole cities for him, but uh, maybe they did, for all I know. (laughs) It turns out that what nobody knows is the bomb is actually ready now. He actually has a working model of the bomb. Everyone thought that it was weeks away from being finished. Here's something I I will just say without comment (laughs) related to recent history. Mm. Helen explains to the professor that the sheltering requirement could go on for a long time because they want people to get used to long alerts. They <laughs> <laughs> say, no comment. <laughs> I suppose we should be grateful that, that we haven't gone our whole lives having to wear radiation proof masks or you something know. like that. <laughs> uh, also the professor indicates that actually there's something I'm leaving out here is this civil defense person comes in and they have a whole long conversation with them, but it's all just to have this exposition. So I'm just leaving out the useless character who has nothing to do with the movie and just yeah. providing the, the exposition. So the bomb is on a hair trigger and the professor is about to disarm it so that, uh, you know, because everyone's on alert and he doesn't want the bomb to go off. And also if the bomb goes off pretty much destroys the entire country. Yeah. I, th- I think some, some, I don't know, maybe it's further on down the line, but at some point he, uh, we learned that, uh, it, it's supposed to devastate, like, I think it was 2 million square miles or something <laughs> like that, which is, is most of North America. <laughs> right. And we learned that this bomb, 
unlike the H-bomb, which is based on hydrogen, this bomb is based on quodium, which is a hundred times more powerful. In fact, it uses an H-bomb just to trigger it. <laughs> and <laughs> what I found just amusing, because if you have any idea, you know, how large the H-bombs were, <laughs> it's really impressive that there's both an H-bomb and a Q-bomb in this little football. <laughs> <laughs> That must be Moore's law, you know, miniaturization yeah. and all that. So we're back to our soldiers using their tourist map to find their way across Central Park. And we see again, decontamination squad truck and, and it pulls up to a stop in the park somewhere with sirens. So it sounds really serious. Two guys in white bunny suits get out and hurry <laughs> off. Seems like it's an emergency. <laughs> Turns out they're headed to the little boy's room. And while they're gone, our soldiers come across the truck with the engine running and they're wondering if they can use it. And then the bunny suit guys come back from the restroom and see that these guys in chain mail are walking around their truck and they identify them as some kind of aliens who have scales, who must've come from a flying saucer. <laughs> And meanwhile, the soldiers see the guys in bunny suits. And so, of course, they think those guys are aliens. So it's hilarity all around. <laughs> all those science fiction movies in the 50s had horrible consequences. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so they fire arrows at the aliens. And then Hartnell, always the voice of reason, says, hold it. They're not from outer space. They're Americans, which I kind of thought was funny. Like, And the guys in the bunny suits flee, but they've left the truck running. And this is one of those of them being very polite. They're like, oh, they left their truck running. The right thing for us to do is to turn in the truck as we surrender, right? So they're going to take the truck to where they surrender and make sure that um, it's not just left running on the side of the street, which is nice of them. Sure. So one of the bunny suit guys tries to call in a report of the aliens to the government. And he's talking about how they have metal heads and they fired at them with a ray gun because somehow he interpreted the arrows as ray guns. The government guy is skeptical, but obviously he tells somebody because this alien rumor quickly spreads and everybody in the shelters are telling each other about it. And every, of course, it's a game of telephone. So each person who tells another one makes the story more fantastic. Well, that guy, one of the guys who was in the white suits, he had gotten out of his suit and he got dragged down into a shelter because he was out on the streets. Even though he was supposed to be out there, he didn't have the right suit to prove that who he was. Right. So he might have so started it. Yeah. He spread the rumor. Yeah. Because yeah. it gets back to him and he says, yeah, yeah I know, or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So the soldiers are trying to drive that truck to this arsenal that Tully believes he knows. But Tully accidentally gets them to the physics lab. And institute. yes, <laughs> the physics Institute, <laughs> and they're all about to leave cause it's the wrong place, but now something happens and some part of Tully gets activated that we've never seen before. And he visualizes the newspaper article, which had mentioned this physics location and the professor that was there. And he has an idea and calls them all in and they go into the building. Meanwhile, we see that the Pentagon, <laughs> in the Pentagon, a general is now calling the government office to report this invasion from Mars. <laughs> and the guy tells the general to personally investigate the ridiculous report. <laughs> so the general calls for a Jeep. Meanwhile, the soldiers go into the room where the professor and Helen are and capture them. <laughs> and for some reason, even though he's had a bunch of time, 
the professor hasn't bothered to disarm the bomb yet. He was like waiting for some sandwiches to settle him down or something. <laughs> and Tully immediately has eyes for Helen, which will become important. <laughs> the daughter and the professor pretend that the bomb is a coffee percolator, but our suddenly smart Tully sees right through their deception, <laughs> realizes well, it's, it's the cue bomb. Yep. It's, it, it's not a hard deception to see through. I mean, it's, it's, it does look like a football, but it's like a diesel punk football. It's got little lights and gauges and all kinds of stuff on it. It's so. buzzing. And, <laughs> so he says they're going to take the bomb with them. And at this point, Tully has realized, okay, they've captured this professor and they've captured the bomb. So I think he, the plan is now changed. Like they now have a weapon that means that they win the war. So, and, and to make things better for them as they're leaving, the general goes by in the Jeep and they take cover in the bushes and take out the tires with arrows. So suddenly their <laughs> marksmanship has gotten better at the one time they needed it. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, they get all around the rim. They're uh, perfect yeah. shots. <laughs> <laughs> and now they have the general captured. So they've got the bomb, the professor and the general. So as I say, Tully realizes they basically won the war. They just need to get people back to Fenwick. And he tells the general, you'll be treated with all deference due to your rank, general. <laughs> mm -hmm. And in the shelter over the radio, we hear the radio announcer and, and it's clear he's trying to tell everyone that there's no actual attack from Mars, but there's these very inconvenient glitches in the radio signal. So all everybody yeah. hears is a confirmation that there's an attack from Mars. <laughs> yeah. So they all freak out and run for the exits. Although I kind of suspect you might be safer in the shelter. Can they attack yeah. from Mars? Yeah, you would think so. But, uh, you know, panicky people don't often think that deeply about things. Yep. Our soldiers arrive back at the boat with their prisoners in the bomb. And the boat crew, who's not part of Fenwick and has, you know, been very amused with these guys, the guy from the boat crew asks how things went with the war. Tully says, we won. <laughs> and the boat heads back toward Grand Fenwick, and we're done with the first half of the film. So we see a, we see a text overlay. Meanwhile, back in Grand Fenwick... And the Grand Fenwick Parliament is assigning tasks for the U.S. occupation. One man will run the PX, which is the post exchange. That's the market where the occupying soldiers will be able to shop. And they're going to let the soldiers have wine at a generous discount. <laughs> Getting very nice of them. Yeah. yeah. Another man is going to head the welcoming committee. And as soon as Grand Fenwick gets some of that American money, uh, <laughs> they must get malted milk machines and hot dogs <laughs> to make, make it a home away from home. And, uh, well, I, 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 I jumped the gun there because they say <laughs> that. Uh, well, well, uh, anyway, uh, Bobo estimates that uh, the non-fraternization rules will last about 48 hours, which seems pretty quick to me, but I haven't really studied it. <laughs> the history of non-fraternization rules with occupying forces. But after that 48 hours, it's implied uh, that the women of Grand Fenwick are going to be let loose on the GIs. Yeah, and I was... It's, okay, again, you know, we know how much censorship there was in the British film industry. We talked about it when we did Carry On Sergeant, you know, the most minor titillating things they had a lot of problems with in the script mm -hmm. and would have to change things around and stuff. When they were talking about that, because, uh, you know, fraternization is a weird word. And I 
sort of know what it means, but, you know, I was thinking maybe they just mean, because I think there's the idea of officers fraternizing with enlisted men, which can right. just mean spending and time with them in a social situation, which can be considered inappropriate, right? Yeah, that's within within the military. The officers and the enlisted aren't supposed to get too chummy. Uh, but I think these non-fraternization roles were the occupying forces versus the natives. Yeah, and and so my so originally I'm like, well, maybe they're talking about that, right, or something, you know, like like non-sexual, because it seems really weird that this. 1959 film would be this explicit about these soldiers coming in and sleeping with the women and the, you know, the girls in the, in the town. But then <laughs> you couldn't escape it because the prime minister says, we want those boys to feel this is a real home away from home. <laughs> <I'm> like, holy <laughs> cow. So basically the prime minister is happy to offer up the young woman of the town to the GIs. And it's like, okay, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, I guess uh, I guess Grand Fenwick has progressive mores for the time. <laughs> <laughs> the opposition leader, Benter, uh, who is Leo McKern, he's concerned that they've heard nothing yet from the invasion force that they sent over. But Bobo says even a complete nincompoop like Tully can't spoil this war. <laughs> Which is maybe misplaced confidence there. Well, or... <laughs> The wrong kind of confidence, because it turns out he didn't spoil the war. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, he spoiled the plan, at least. Yeah. <laughs> Back on the Paladin, the Paladin is the little, the little tiny ship that they've been using. Will Buckley, who is Hardinal, he forces the U.S. general to do exercises, which uh, the, the general's kind of a stout fellow, so he probably could benefit from it, but the general isn't. <laughs> Isn't enthused about being ordered around. <laughs> He's um, doing it by poking him in the butt with little swords. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Down in the cargo hold, we get a brief look at the soldier who's clutching the bomb with one arm, and with the other arm, he's fending off these crates and barrels that are sliding and rolling around due to the rocking of the boat. That's just a little quick, quick cutaway scene. Then we see the a room, it turns out to be Helen's room. I thought it was the doctor's room at first, but he, he turns out to be a visitor to her room. The doctor is eager to dismantle the bomb, and he finally persuades Helen to use her wiles on Tully to try and uh, get the doctor access to the bomb. And she's very say, reluctant. Helen is Jean Seberg, who we'll talk about more at the end, but she is really good looking. And so, you know, it is conceivable that she could, in fact, use her wiles. <laughs> yeah, she's uh, she's not really my type, but she's a uh, she's a pretty pretty lady, that's for sure. The doctor's visiting time is over soon enough. Uh, the soldiers come to remove him, and when they do, he, Helen asks them that she, uh, they, she wants to see the dictator. She calls him, but meaning Tully. Soon enough, Tully staggers across the deck. To the room, he's seasick as usual. He enters the room, but the ship keeps rocking, and he uh, he exits briefly a couple times. He you know, walks in, goes right back out the door, and finally he manages to stay put in the room. But he has a hard time focusing on Ellen's come ons, <laughs> and they're not subtle come ons. <laughs> oh yeah, she pulls her shirt shoulder down so that she has a bare mm. shoulder and tells him he can oh, kiss her. Yeah. I mean, you can't get much more <laughs> obvious. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, first there's a big wave and that rocks the boat. And of course, as we've <laughs> seen in 
many movies during our lives, uh, you know, that, that little motion makes Tully end up holding Helen. So he lets her go. He turns away and she says, I've always admired strong, silent men like you. <laughs> she invites him to kiss her. He turns and looks, but he sees the kerosene lamp hanging from the ceiling and it's swinging back and forth. That re-triggers his sickness and he rushes out the door. So that all came to naught for, mm. the, mo for the moment. <laughs> On the way back to Europe, the paladin passes the Queen Elizabeth again. <laughs> And the Queen Elizabeth has instructions to be on the lookout for a small pirate ship flying a flag with a double-headed eagle. The captain of the Queen Elizabeth calls out to the paladin to ask them. It sounds like he's going to ask them if they've seen a ship, not whether or not they right, are right. the ship. Yeah, he doesn't he, think they could um, be, yeah. <laughs> but as soon as he calls out, he gets barraged with more arrows. Yep. So the, the paladin's made it past them twice now. It returns to the Marseille bus station and Tully buys 29 bus tickets <laughs> for the soldiers and for their, uh, for their prisoners. Helen tries telling the ticket clerk she's been kidnapped and she speaks French, but her French is very American. <laughs> and there's a, a bit of funny thing, if you know here. So Jean Seberg's spent half her time every year living in France, so she really clearly could speak good French. Oh, <laughs> Clearly, okay. they made a choice here. Yeah. Because the, oh. the French guy was like, what language was she speaking? <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. Well, as, as this whole conversation goes on, the ticket clerk, he'll occasionally ask Tully something. And Tully just always answers, we, yes. <laughs> the general comes up next. Uh, he complains to the clerk in English, which the clerk doesn't speak. The soldiers drag him away soon enough. And then the clerk, with subtitles, talks about his fondness for Americans. You know, he, yeah. he likes them. He thinks they may be a little gauche, but they're a young nation and so forth. And know. he assumes the people in front of him are doing some Mardi Gras thing or something, and they're all in costumes. <laughs> so he's, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So after the clerk finally closes the ticket booth, well, Will, which is to say Hartnell, he asks Tully what that was all about. And Tully says, I don't know. I don't speak French. <laughs> now, a little bit of a groaner there. Oh, and an and odd and somewhat amusing thing is that when he says that, that English line gets a subtitle too. So. Yeah, I thought that was a little funny. So that, that, that amused me more than many of the jokes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So now we see the Secretary of Defense's office in the, in the Pentagon. Uh, he's talking to a soldier. The FBI finally found... Grand Fenwick's declaration of war behind a radiator in Chester's office. Chester was the guy who originally got the message. And Chester is getting posted to the island of Yap. The island of Yap, it's implied, is not a place that you want to get posted to. <laughs> uh, the only thing I know about it is that supposedly they have giant stone coins. That's <laughs> The Secretary of Defense isn't looking forward to telling the president about the situation, and he's puzzled about this declaration of war. He says, we've always been nice to little countries all over the world. <laughs> Which is a funny statement in itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The soldier reminds him that Grand Fenwick had submitted some protests in the past. There was something I noticed here, and it's, it's just one of those things that once you notice it, it stands out, which is, that the Secretary of Defense's dialogue is all from the scene, from when they, they filmed it. 
but the other mm-hmm. guy's dialogue is all dubbed. I have no huh. idea why, you know, they didn't like his voice or he got the lines wrong or something, but, but huh. once you notice that you can't unnotice it, like every oh, single line okay. is dubbed. It's one huh. of those things. Well, I guess it's good that I just didn't notice it. <laughs> <laughs> the secretary of defense complains about breaking the news or about having to break the news to the president that, uh, we, we've lost the war. The U S has lost the war. And he lets slip something that he probably shouldn't, but uh, yeah. doesn't seem to hurt anything. He explains that Dr. Kokins was among the hostages, and so was a working model of the Q-bomb. This whole scene seems like something that's done just for the benefit of people who just arrived in the theater or just <laughs> tuning into the rerun. It's really stuff we already know. Yeah, and this will come to, I mean, it kind of contradicts your thing about them having a lot of stuff. So obviously they did have a lot of stuff in one way, but I would also argue for an 80-minute film, there's an amazing amount of this, scenes and dialogue and characters that don't provide anything new or give any purpose. It's really, it's it's impressive in such a short film that you could have so much fluff, you know? Yeah, yeah, I think uh, for a, for an 80-minute film, it'd, it'd probably make a real good 60-minute film. Yeah, exactly. Well, I was thinking you could do this in two episodes of Doctor Who, right? And that's basically right. what that would be. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but we're getting to our conclusions. So we're not quite oh, there sure. yet. <laughs> <laughs> so back at Grand Fenwick, we see the castle courtyard. And the courtyard's packed with people. And they're all waving American flags. There's a brass band that's playing various American patriotic tunes. We see lots of placards. Most of them are positive, although one does say, go home, Yank. (laughs) Again, I liked that. I thought that was funny. But yeah, the positive ones are also funny. One of them said, uh, gum chum. (laughs) (laughs) Weird little sign. (laughs) But they also have very clear ones like, you know, we love America, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> so they're obviously preparing for the arrival of the, uh, occupational forces. One thing I thought was a little humorous here, and it, it connects to that earlier discussion about fraternization is that there's a young girl who's clearly very enthusiastic to meet the American soldiers and her, her mother drags her behind a door and puts a no entrance sign out, which is also kind of funny if you think about it. And, uh, it reminded me of that saying that they had for when World War II in Britain about American soldiers, they said they're oversexed, they're overpaid and they're over here. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I watched that scene with the mother and her daughter twice and I didn't really get the import of it i mean i saw it but i didn't quite understand what the point of it is but yeah, i think you're exactly right your interpretation <laughs> of it. so there's a throne out here in the courtyard the duchess sat on it earlier when she was dismissing the soldiers and now she sits on it again to greet the returning soldiers and we see bobo and benter emerge from the castle bobo has gotten a telegram from tully it, it says Arriving approximately 2 p.m. with Americans and wonderful news. <laughs> At last, uh, Tully and Will march in. They're leading the, the soldiers and their American prisoners. <laughs> Bobo and Benter look, look confused at that, seeing them leading the procession. Tully explains that they've captured the Q-bomb, and he introduces the doctor and Alan. The doctor begs the Duchess, 
to let him disarm the bomb, but Tully insists that if he does, Grand Fenwick hasn't won anything. Mm. Yeah, that's a fair point. <laughs> the Duchess says, put the bomb away somewhere in the dungeon. And I should, you know, this is probably something we'll discuss more at the end, but uh, I think the Duchess is probably one of the most level-headed characters in the whole show. To me, at least, she seems. Mm. And Helen pleads with the Duchess to return the bomb, but the soldiers just drag her away. <laughs> and Tully seems impressed with uh, with Helen's statements. He says, there goes a red-blooded American girl. <laughs> also, one thing I'll say about, about the Duchess is it's kind of similar to the role in Harry Potter that Dumbledore plays, right? Which is he half the time doesn't seem to know what's going on and says things that don't quite make sense. But the other half the time, you know, he's very wise. And that's kind of the Duchess here, right? It, mm-hmm. You know, she she thinks uh, she's wrong. Um, what is it? She thinks the president is uh, Grover Cleveland, not Grover Cleveland. Um, Calvin Coolidge. Yeah, yeah, she thinks the president of the U.S. is Calvin Coolidge. You know, she says things that are very clueless. But like you say, she also seems to usually kind of have the right idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's uh, probably one of my favorite characters in the whole thing. General Snippet, who is, he's the American general, that's his name, Snippet. Uh, he warns the Duchess that he knows the Geneva Conventions by heart. And the <laughs> Duchess says, oh, you must recite it to me some evening. I play the harpsichord. <laughs> so, And I will say this whole next bit with the general and the soldiers is probably one of the more successful comedy sequences in the film. Oh, the, the part just coming up here? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, the way it ends up. I, I got a kick out of that. Yeah. We see a room. There's a sign overhead in the, the general and the New York Police Department officers. They're brought into this room. We see the sign Museum of Ancient Tortures. <laughs> but they don't notice it. They just see the wax figures who are on the rack and, <laughs> you know, four or five other various tortures. So the general tells the police that they need to form an escape committee, whatever that is. <laughs> well, uh, this is actually historical, which is my understanding is that if you are captured as a POW, at least if, uh, in America, you have, and, and you're an officer especially, you have an obligation to escape. And, I have heard that, yeah. Yeah, and, and part of that is forming an escape committee uh, committee to figure out how you're going to escape. So I think that's actually a, a true statement, yeah. Well, okay, I guess I'm just, uh, I've been too uh, too jaded against the idea of committees over the years. <laughs> <laughs> and there's this whole funny thing, and, uh, uh, you know, I'm, uh, we have a topic we want to do some type of films of, of, you know, people escaping from prisons like this, you know, the great escape sort of thing. And there is this whole weird, amusing, but true thing that happened in World War II, which is that the Americans would escape, especially the officers, because a lot of times they were being held in some castle or something that, you know, hadn't been designed as a prison and it was pretty Mm -hmm. easy to escape. And then the Germans would capture them and bring them back and they'd escape again. And it was kind of a game, you know, that that was keeping Mm -hmm. them busy. Well. At some point, the Germans decided we're getting tired of this game, and they just started shooting people Ooh. who escaped, and that put an end to to it. But it's just kind of, oh. you know, they actually had this sort of Hogan's Heroes like thing going on for a little while yeah. until uh, 
until someone got tired of the fun and games. <laughs> the Nazis violated the Geneva Conventions. Oh, I'll be darned. <laughs> yep. Surprise. <laughs> Who'd have thought? So the, while the general's planning with the police or trying to order the police around, uh, the Duchess enters. And she explains that this is a museum. They don't torture people anymore. This is just <laughs> a look back at the old days. And the general begins insisting that he and the cops be, be afforded the minimum requirements of the Geneva <laughs> Conventions. They want an eight by six cell. They want food served on tin plates. The Duchess says <laughs> she doesn't think they have tin plates, but the general refuses to budge and he turns his back to the Duchess. Well, she gestures to the guard at the door, and he brings in a couple pretty hostesses. And while the general's back is turned, he's saying he'll only eat if it's served on a tin plate. <laughs> the hostesses lead the cops out, and the policemen end up in a luxurious room with excellent food, and it's served on china plates. Really uh, <laughs> very, very posh accommodations for prisoners. And then we cut to a dark, cobwebby cell in the dungeon lit by a, a single candle where the general is sitting eating a small meal off a tin plate. And he says, I showed them no tin plates, eh? But they had tin plates. <laughs> so he kind of shot himself in the foot there because yeah. he, he was insisting on the bare minimum when they had a lot That more. is a good sequence. Yeah, it's a it's a good gag. I liked that one. Probably one of yeah, probably one of the better scenes in the movie. I think. But then we see a newspapers montage. I don't think we get a spinning paper this time, but we get the the Q bomb stolen and you know various headlines. And then we see a BBC announcer. He's describing how that various countries of the world are sucking up to Grant Fenwick. Of course, that's <laughs> not the term he uses for it, but they're all trying to ingratiate themselves. The Soviets are among those countries, and of course, they say that they invented a Q-bomb some time ago. <laughs> they didn't tell anybody about it. Mm -hmm. The announcer says Grant Fenwick remains silent and appears almost indifferent to the rising tension. <laughs> but then we cut to the Grant Fenwick Parliament, and everyone looks glum. They're all sitting there with their heads in their hands, and nobody's happy. The Duchess is up uh, up on the dais, and Tully is seated not too far away from her, also on the dais. Will Hartnell, uh, he enters with a telegram for Bobo. It's an offer of help from China. And uh, Benter says, we simply can't do business with Red China. Bobo says, it's not from Red China, it's from the other one. <laughs> that was cute. In the Pentagon, the Secretary of Defense is in a room with... Several officers, probably supposed to be the Joint Chiefs of Staff. One general suggests attacking Grant Fenwick, but the Secretary of Defense points out it wouldn't look good in the history books attacking the smallest country in the world. <laughs> the general says, you know something? We're stuck. Various nations are offering to send troops to defend Grant Fenwick, that we find out in this conversation. And all these nations want to take the bomb home for safekeeping. <laughs> Back in the Grand Fenwick Parliament, Bobo says, We fought a war and reaped as the fruits of victory disaster. <laughs> Back in the Pentagon, the same general proposes 
sending more divisions to Grand Fenwick's aid than the competition is offering. <laughs> Secretary of Defense says, how can we send troops to protect our enemy? The general says, you know something? We're stuck. <laughs> back in the parliament, Bobo says they must give America its bomb back immediately. The Duchess isn't so sure about that. She says, even if they give it back, some other country will invent a Q-bomb, then an X-bomb, and so forth. Mm. She doesn't know what to suggest, but she thinks they should wait. So Bobo is frustrated, and he's had this big gold chain. It looks like it's a bunch of gold coins strung together. It's his bling of office, and he, he takes it off and sets it down, and he walks out, followed by the rest of Parliament. So the Duchess says, Tully is the Prime Minister now. <laughs> and the Duchess uh, says, rather sadly, having, having the bad conscience of the world in one's own home is very difficult. And, and, it, and it's surprisingly, to me at least, it was surprisingly affecting. Uh, it was really, I guess you could say it was well acted or something. I mean, mm -hmm. this uh, Duchess uh, who who could very well seem to be ridiculous, seems genuinely weighted down. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then she goes on to repeat a refrain that she's mentioned earlier about, uh, you know, she wishes her late husband were here. He had mm -hmm. died decades ago. So it's, it's, I found that it, I mean, it's not like a real tearjerker or anything, but it was just weightier than it had a right to be, <laughs> for lack of mm -hmm. a better term. And Tully, uh, after, after the Duchess leaves, Tully says to Will, but we won, didn't we? And Hartnell says, uh, rather resignedly, he says, the world isn't the same anymore. Mm-hmm. Back at the Pentagon, the general, who's had two suggestions shot down, he suggests making peace. And the Secretary of Defense is pleased to hear it. He says, that's what the president wants. But the Secretary of State is in the Far East, so the Secretary of Defense will go up to do the uh, negotiations. And we see another uh, text overlay. However, <laughs> Bobo and Benter are up to no good. They visit Helen in her quarters in the castle. They propose to get her the bomb and help the hostages or prisoners escape. Down in the dungeon... Tully is watching the bomb resting on a pile of straw, big old, big old pile, so it's nice and cushioned. Bobo and Better sneak up to the door, but they peek in through the window and they see Tully inside and they sneak away again. In Helen's room, Tully goes to visit. Helen is behind a closed door. The bathroom is uh, where she is. She's in a big barrel bathing in it. She says, come in, thinking it's Bobo and Benter. Come into the, the main room, not into the bathroom. <laughs> Tully comes in. He says he wants to be friends. Helen says they can never be friends, yeah, which is a change from what she was saying on the boat. She pulls a rope to pour rinse water over herself, but the water's cold, and she screams, which causes Tully to rush in. As soon as he enters... She immediately throws a towel over his head. He says he'll wait out in the main room. 
At the border, we see that the cars of several diplomats are parked there, you know, big, black, shiny staff cars, and one of them is even from the USSR. The American Secretary of Defense arrives in a Cadillac. Hartnell is at the guard post, and he informs the Secretary of Defense his orders are to admit no one. The Secretary says he's come to discuss surrender terms. <laughs> Will asks, whose? And... In a very pained voice, the secretary says, ours. <laughs> secretary tries to sneak around the gate, which, uh, I mean, it's, it's not hard. It's just one of those little raising and lowering, uh, you know, sticks on a, on a post. But the Soviet diplomat stops him uh, out of solidarity with the workers <laughs> of Grand Fenwick. And then the Soviet offers Will some caviar, but he never touches the stuff. Back in the dungeon, the general... The New York police and Bobo and Benter are standing around the bomb. The general's going to have to carry it. He's just sort of the default choice nobody else volunteers to. And he doesn't really have the authority to force anybody to. The bomb rattles. Its annoying alarm goes off. Somewhere in here, you got to put a sound clip of that in because it's really <laughs> grating. <laughs> The alarm goes off, it rattles when he, the general picks it up, uh, but then he tries more gently, and it's quiet, at least for now. We get a brief scene in Duchess Gloriana's harpsichord room. Uh, she's playing for the doctor. She plays reasonably well and doesn't sing particularly well. Uh, the doctor seems to be sleeping on a couch nearby, and that's all we see of that. It's one of those <laughs> moments that's just sort of it's not clear what the point is, although it may be to explain why the doctor isn't in the car a little later. <laughs> anyway, back in Helen's room, now she's out of the bath and she's dressed. She tells Telly to leave, and they argue about the bomb. And finally, Helen says, it belongs to the United States. And Tully says, you belong to me. And he kisses her, <laughs> and she kisses back. So Tully has had... I don't know how to put it. He's, he's suddenly very bold. I guess that's the force of true love or something like well, he's that. He's had an arc, you know, because he starts yeah. out incompetent, and then he's the one who figures out how to win the war, and now he's getting a little confidence with the women. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she kisses him back. Not long, just a few seconds. But uh, after that, he walks out of the room. Helen looks very surprised and uh, somewhat pensive, you know, thinking about what's just happened. Tully walks away from her room down the hallway, and he looks pretty dazed, understandably. And as he passes by a big curtain, Bender and Bobo emerge from behind it. Bender goes to get the car, then Bobo goes to Helen's room. Tully is almost about to enter the dungeon cell. If he did, he'd find that the bomb was missing. Mm -hmm. But then his expression changes. He seems to be making a decision. And he turns around and goes back, knocks on Helen's door, and she says he can't come in. And we see Bobo is in there with her, so that's why he can't come in. <laughs> Tully says he's come to apologize, but his problem is that he loves her. <laughs> and she looks pleased to hear that, but she tells him to wait while she thinks. Bobo hustles her out the window, and she tells Bobo, uh, mm -hmm. as they're hustling, that... Uh, she thinks she's always liked Tully. Mm -hmm. 
We see in the Duchess's car the general and the New York cops are waiting there. Tully goes into Helen's room when she doesn't respond to his knocking on the door. He enters, and as he does that, Helen and Bobo arrive at the car. Uh, Helen notices her dad, the doctor, isn't in the car, and she doesn't want to leave in that old shaky car without the bomb being disarmed, which is prudent, I would think. Mm -hmm. Bobo says there's no time, and he sends the car away. So, I mean, that's, if, 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 if we demanded any logic from the plot, which by now, uh, <laughs> we're past that, I think, we would, you know, want to see Helen insist upon having the bomb disarmed first, but, but, you know, the plot wouldn't work that way. So, yeah, <laughs> she gets in and the car drives off. Tully, in Helen's room, hears the car leaving, and he looks out to see it driving off. And he says, uh, emphatically, he says, my girl, my bomb. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, the action uh, changes. Or we don't, we're no longer in Grand Fenwick. We're watching footage of an atomic test. <laughs> and it's, uh, it, I, I've seen this footage several times before i mean it's used been used in various shows and movies and whatnot mm -hmm. the announcer says ladies and gentlemen this is not the end of our show <laughs> however something very much like this could happen at any moment we just thought we ought to prepare you and more or less put you in the mood thank you <laughs> and now back to our story yeah, I thought that was a pretty good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it uh, it reminds me, Douglas Adams, I think it was in one of the Hitchhiker's books, he uses a very similar joke, uh, you know, like uh, it's something about anxiety being recognized as, uh, you know, one of the biggest health problems throughout the galaxy, so uh, he's going to reveal that what's coming up next. And, but similar gag, but yeah, it's cute. I like it. <laughs> so back at the border... The diplomats are playing diplomacy. <laughs> now, you might think that this is the classic game of negotiation and backstabbing. Uh, and it, I looked it up. It turns out that the game Diplomacy was released in 1959, when, you know, the same year this movie was released. Mm -hmm. But actually, the game that these guys are playing is a rebranded Monopoly board. <laughs> <laughs> the gameplay goes on for about a minute, and it... It, it just, it seems, it seems stretched out to me. It, 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 I, I think, I, I think I see what they were going for. They're kind of satirizing the trivialization of okay. diplomacy with, you know, uh, oh, you owe me 500 heavy bombers and so forth. And it feels like it could be a setup for a later gag, but as far as I can tell, it isn't. I think this just, it, it's, it's kind of a problem that we saw a little bit in the movie network where Modern reality has caught up and surpassed the satire. It's more <laughs> extreme than the satire itself. Right. Um, so a couple little comments here. One, that we will see a network a little while in the future. <laughs> Got to keep those, <laughs> those timelines straight. Uh, and the other is that it's kind of, this is interesting, almost foretelling of the future, because we mentioned Henry Kissinger earlier, you know, being represented in... Um, Dr. Strangelove. In Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> I can't believe I'm forgetting the name. And this is his favorite game. <laughs> so we see the Duchess's car coming down the road. This isn't approaching these diplomats. This is a different scene altogether. 
And we get we get a glimpse of uh, the necking couple that was shown in the very beginning of the introduction of the movie. Yeah, I didn't describe that part, that. but yeah, yeah. They, when they were talking about Grand Fenwick, they were saying it was a very happy place because of all the money they had and everything. And we see, you know, a guy and a woman behind a tree as the Duchess drives by uh, doing stuff yeah. to do behind a tree. <laughs> yeah, it's just a little so five-second cutaway. You know, it's cute. Yeah. <laughs> and we see Tully. He's scampering over the hills and fields of Grand Fenwick trying to catch up to the car. The car starts backfiring very loudly, so lo- <laughs> loudly that it triggers the alarm on the bomb. So the general orders the policeman who's driving to stop. The bomb settles down, and he, he he says to the policeman, fix the car. So disaster is averted for the moment, at least. And we see Tully is stuck in the fox trap again, and the okay. fox is staring at him. I wouldn't be surprised if they actually reused the very same I'm sure film they that they used. <laughs> yeah. So eventually, apparently, Tully gets out of the trap because next we see him run out of the fields onto the road um, and start running down it towards the border just as a car is approaching behind him and honks at him. And he, he just waves it past, and as it passes, he realizes that it's the car he's chasing, <laughs> which, yeah, I can't think there are that many cars driving the roads of <laughs> Grant Fenway. Yep. And Helen calls out to him from the car, but they're way off down the road now. Tully mounts a horse. The horse just won't move. It, it doesn't have a saddle, but it has a, a, a halter on some sort. It does, it's not a full, it doesn't have reins or anything, but uh, the horse isn't doing anything, so he gets back off. So the little horse scene is one of the things that I think we meant when we were discussing the fillerish nature. <laughs> like it's really, it's not a knee slapper. It's, it's mildly cute. Yeah, you know, but it doesn't really play into anything else we've seen or will see. Yeah. Uh, so one of those things. <laughs> the car is too weak to get up a hill that it encounters. So Helen and the cops get out and push. They get to get it to the crest of the hill. I, I saw this coming right before it actually happened. The The car starts coasting down the hill and... Bef- that before anyone can get back in, it accelerates, and they can't reach it. So the general and the bomb are alone in the back seat, <laughs> which is uh, uh, I don't envy him being in that <laughs> situation. <laughs> Hell and the cops give chase. A cart crosses the road and narrowly avoids a crash with the the Duchess's car. The car finally heads off road through a field. The alarm starts its raspy alarm again. I should say the bomb starts its raspy alarm again. The car heads for a great big haystack. The cops dig out the car, and now the bomb's alarm is worse than ever because now it has an added noise. There's a ringing bell. The general sitting in the back seat still and covered in hay now. He throws the bomb like a football, and uh, a cop catches it. And then the cops play hot potato with it. (laughs) And and as they do this, it starts making worse noises. Now it's making these electronic whoops. 
And from the cops, the bomb gets into the hands of the diplomats, who are still <laughs> gathered at the border there. They pass the bomb around, and finally Tully catches it. And Tully ends up lying prone. He manages to stretch out his arms and set down the bomb just over the white-painted line that marks the border <laughs> for a touchdown, which, which means he's put it back in Grand Fenwick. And that immediately stops the alarm. <laughs> so, very, very convenient way of uh, stopping the alarm. It's a touchdown detecting bomb. The next scene, we're in the aftermath stage. We see uh, Benter and Bobo are stomping grapes in the big vat we saw at the very beginning uh, when they talked about the uh, Pinot Grand Fenwick. But it wasn't them stomping grapes then. This is their punishment for treason, which is better than being hanged, I guess. Uh, but they don't look happy about it. In the Parliament chamber, the Duchess supervises, as Will, Tartnell that is, carries a treaty to the table where the Secretary of Defense and Ellen and her father, the doctor, and Tully are all seated. And Tully, he seems fairly confident. He's kind of grown into office, it seems. And he's going to dictate some additional terms of the agreement. Uh, first, the California wine will be taken off the market. Hate to see a wine taken off the market, <laughs> but what can you do? The uh, Grant Fenwick also wants a million dollars. The Secretary <laughs> of Defense says, you may have to take a billion. <laughs> the U.S. isn't used to dealing in uh, that chunk change. So it's not bad. It's not a bad joke. But uh, in my opinion, I think Austin Powers did the joke better with the $100 billion. <laughs> but, uh, but it's cute. Tully says some of the money will go for improving Grand Fenwick's plumbing because Tully and Helen are going to be married. And, of course, we don't want her heavy to bathe in a big barrel anymore. <laughs> Another condition of the treaty will be that the bomb stays here in Grand Fenwick. And so will the doctor to develop a Pinot-flavored chewing gun, which <laughs> actually sounds like a good idea. <laughs> Grand Fenwick will become part of a League of Little Nations, and it will set up a disarmament policy for the big nations <laughs> of the world. The Secretary of Defense seems a bit skeptical about the practicality of this, but Tully says if the big nations resist, Grand Fenwick will set off the bomb. The secretary doesn't seem too persuaded that they would do that, but the Duchess points out that in an atomic war, Grand Fenwick would be destroyed anyway. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, she's got some kind of point anyway. So the secretary agrees to it. He leaves. As he leaves, the Duchess says, Do give my love to your president, will you? And Mrs. Coolidge, too. <laughs> so, yeah, she's probably in. I, I could be wrong. I'm guessing Coolidge was probably president back when uh, her dear departed husband uh, bought the farm. So that business concluded. The doctor wants to finally inspect and disarm the bomb that's been hanging over everybody's heads for the, for the whole movie. They go down to the dungeon cell. The doctor fiddles with the bomb. He's about to sneeze, and Tully, Tully puts a finger under his nose to block the sneeze. Didn't we see something? Doc, uh, one of the most recent episodes of Doctor Who that we watched had a very similar... Vicky sneezed. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the museum planet. Yeah, Space, space museum, museum. Yeah, yeah. yeah. same exact gag here. And the Doctor 
sneezes, he drops the bomb. The alarm sounds, but nothing happens. <laughs> the doctor picks it up, taps it, pokes it, and he says, You were a dud? All the time it was a dud. Remarkable. <laughs> and Tully puts a finger to his lips. He says, Only we know. <laughs> so he's getting a bit shrewd as a, as a prime minister. Now. Mm -hmm. They all leave the cell, leave the bomb on its pile of straw, and Will approaches. He says, how's the bomb getting on? Tully says, never better, Will. Hartnell says, oh, fine, fine. All right, carry on. <laughs> these, are the, these are the last spoken words mm -hmm. of the film, and it's worth mentioning that that was a movie that, well, as you said at the beginning, Carry On Sergeant, he had just, was it just a year prior? That yeah, he made that? yeah. And, so uh, it's quite possible this was a reference, yeah. So. Yeah, and I think at some point during this movie, they actually used the phrase carry on sergeant. But yeah, I, I think they did. You know. I'm not, I don't recall exactly when. So uh, I think, I think that Presumably, made... now, I'm just assuming, because if the film came out a year earlier and it was a surprise hit, when they were working on this film, they would have known that. So, you know, sure. it, it makes sense that they might have put in a couple of, of references. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it did, uh, it, you know, it was something I had never heard of until you brought it in for the Hartnell Worth Watching series. <laughs> but but apparently at the time, uh, well, you know, it, it founded a whole, a whole series of films. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was probably, would au courant be the right term? <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, they all leave the dungeon, and in the dungeon cell... We hear suspenseful music play as a mouse emerges from the bomb. So it leaves us with a little ambiguity. Was the mouse just interrupting some contacts and now the bomb is not a dud anymore? Or, you know, could uh, could mean a number of things. We don't know. Yeah, in, in the Wikipedia entry, they claimed that it seems like the bomb has been rearmed. Mm-hmm. That seems to me to be very impractical because that means it's going to go off at some point. But, you know, uh, <laughs> who knows? Well, as long as nobody jostles it, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. And then we see uh, the text appears, the end. And in smaller text below it, it says, <laughs> we hope. <laughs> and now I will say that we hope thing kind of maybe says maybe they were implying it may have been rearmed, right? So that might yeah. make sense. It makes a joke. <laughs> yeah. And then the uh, Columbia logo reappears, and Columbia steps back up on her pedestal. <laughs> and that is the end. Yep. So, amusingly, we spent more time talking about the movie than it than the actual movie. So um, <laughs> may, maybe what we should do is just insert the audio of the movie into the podcast. <laughs> there you go. Good idea. <laughs> well, let's talk about this. And I don't know. We might have some different opinions. I don't know. We'll see. Right. So, well, I just, you know, to me, this is, I, I'm, this is what I call a very dry comedy. And that might not be quite the right term for what dry comedy would mean. But yeah, I... I think of dry comedy as being kind of cutting, and this this has really seemed more cute to me. Right. This seemed like like baby's first Doctor Strange love. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's here's what I mean by that, and I'm sure there's some better phrase to describe it. 
which is like, there are these, we've talked about them at least once before. There's a famous set of movies from Ealing Studios, which were comedies, a lot of them with Alec Guinness in them. And they, when I watch them, they just kind of bounce off me for a similar reason, which is that they make a joke and they're very self-conscious that it's a joke and mm-hmm. it just sort of lays there, you know, and mm-hmm. it's all, and, and I hate to say this cause not that I want movies like this to have a laugh track, but it's the reason they would put a laugh track onto TV shows, right? They wanted right. you to know, oh, that was a joke and other people enjoyed it and it made you feel better about it. But yeah, here yeah. it's just like, oh, here's this joke. Oh, he's stuck on this horse. Okay. Now we, you know, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, there's, there, there's. There's a lot of jokes in this movie where you almost feel like, you know, the director or someone is sort of looking at you and raising their eyebrows going, huh? Huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and so that doesn't work well for me. And one of the reasons I like the whole sequence with the general insisting on the tin plate and everything is that it, it didn't have that. It was actually funny. And it, mm-hmm. and it wasn't just sitting there waiting for you to acknowledge that it was funny. Right. And so that's right. the difference between those kind of jokes to me. Not that I would know how to write one versus the other or anything like that. But yeah. uh, I mentioned very similar plot to the producers, but I would hold up the producers as the example of you really can do this better because yeah, the producers has the same plot, right? We need to fail, but we accidentally succeeded and that screws us up. The exact same mm-hmm. plot. Oh yeah. But the producers has tons of just hilarious characters and situations and, and great jokes and all this. And so I think it just shows that, yeah, you can do this without that. And as we, and, and also I think I feel actually as part of our discussion here that really maybe the problem is mostly the first half of the film, because the second half has a lot more going on and a lot more real character stuff. And some of the stuff you talked about with the Duchess and you know, with Helen and Tully's relationship and all this other plot stuff going on. Some of it could have been done better, but at least a lot is going on. The entire Mm. first half of the film is just one repetition after another, one character who doesn't matter after another, one action (laughs) that doesn't matter after another. And it's not, I mean, they had to put some time in there, you know, if they're going to have them go and conquer the United States. But I just Mm. feel like they could have done... They could have taken out a lot of that stuff and put in actual character development for Hartnell, you know, or, uh, or somebody and, and, you know, done some things there. That's, <laughs> but uh-huh. yeah, I just, I just feel like, uh, yeah, what, what it kind of comes down to me is, and th- this gets back to your original scription where you said your, your mother, you thought told you the plot of this and that's what you remembered. And I feel like when I was a kid and I was hearing about this film. That's what was happening is that the concept was funny, right? Tiny mm-hmm. country declares war on the U S to get reparations and accidentally wins. Okay. Funny mm-hmm. concept. I just think the execution is just not there and it's just not nearly as funny telling somebody about this movie, maybe not the way we did in this podcast, but if you were to just summarize the movie to somebody, I think would sound way funnier than the actual movie, you know, oh, Peter yeah. Sellers playing multiple roles in this tiny country and they take over the U.S. and, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was really, I mean, I, I won't say I was, I was hyped for the, to watch it, but I was, I was anticipating, you know, I, I was looking forward to it. And I, I, I mean, if you'd asked me 
to put down some money on whether I'd I'd really like it. You know, I'd say, well, yeah, I'll put down five bucks on it. I'll, <laughs> I'll probably really like it. And you know, it I do I I like it, but I don't really like it. I, I like it a little. It's like I think maybe for me, part of the thing is that you hear the premise. And, and even what, when you get into the movie, like I didn't realize that the method by which they won the war was that they kidnapped this super bomb, you know, so you've got a very dark mm-hmm. storyline going on there, strange love like storyline, but the humor in the movie is, you know, not only is it usually pretty simple, basic stuff that you know, more of a chuckle than a laugh. But it's also a lot sweeter, I think, overall. It's not like, you know, the dark kind of Dr. Strangelove or the producers. Mm-hmm. You know, right, it's, it's, right. it's more sweet and good-natured mostly, with, with a few exceptions. You know, but uh, um, So, yeah, it's, it's very different from what I was expecting. So, but uh, it had its moments. Yeah. <laughs> well, also, just, you know, to bang out a little more, I mean, we've already referenced so many characters and actors were wasted you know leo mckern had no character nothing to do he Mm -hmm. and as i said again and this could have fleshed out the first half a little more right as the loyal opposition leader if he'd actually put up some opposition and maybe had some debates and fights or had a different opinion on how to do it leo mckern is such a great actor you know that could have been Mm -hmm. interesting i mean we saw him you know (laughs) arguing with patrick mcguin right oh sure he was terrific in the prisoner (laughs) yeah so he was totally wasted, and, and that character could have actually fleshed out things. Uh, I would say, I mean, maybe I'm a little warmer on it after we talk about it, but I feel like Peter Sellers playing several roles didn't do a whole lot for it. Yeah, you, you know, out of the three roles, the Duchess, the Duchess impressed me. I, I thought there was some depth to that, which is, uh, you know, the Duchess is the character who would be the easiest to just play for laughs, you know, being in drag and so forth. Right. But, uh, but the Duchess, really, I thought of the three, was the one that really had the most going for her. You know, the Prime Minister, Bobo, he was uh, he was fine, you know. And then Tully was, uh, he, I mean, he did a good job as Tully, but Tully just isn't really a compelling character in himself. He's sort of a nebbish, you know, so. Right. I mean, but, but, yeah, I mean. I will say, it is to their credit that they didn't play the Duchess as a, funny drag thing right mm-hmm. which can be funny i mean monty python has done that in a way oh, that sure. i think is funny but she was an actual character and i think that's probably probably good yeah yeah that was i mean i mean the way she's played she's just another character right and, and i think what i would ones. i think my argument about sellers playing multiple roles is that somehow in dr strange love there's an energy that comes from that or something interesting and the roles are so different and that that there's something interesting about that here, like you say, it's just kind of another character. He he didn't. Someone else could have played it, or Peter Sellers could have played just that character. You know, there's nothing I felt that the film got from the fact that Peter Sellers was playing multiple characters. Mm-hmm. Now, a weird one, kind of a dark one. I don't know much about Gene Seberg who played Holland, but I did feel like it's one of those cases. We talked about this in King Kong with Jessica Lang, where. In that case, she was a model. I don't know if Jane Seberg was ever a model, but but she brought something more to it than just being a model. And that you know, 
there's a particular thing. If a model can't act, it's really obvious, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, on the one hand, she's doing Gene Seberg here playing Helen is doing a kind of shallow character, but you know, she clearly could actually act as well as being beautiful. So I, I mm -hmm. looked her up in Wikipedia and I, it was sort of a shocking, you know, twist to all this. Um, she was in like 34 films, some of which were very significant, like Breathless, which is a, a, an important film, um, Paint Your Wagon, which is, I think, kind of a comedy that film one. that's important, et cetera. 34 films, she died at 40 of probably mm -hmm. suicide. And the really bizarre part of this story is that she was one of the key people that the FBI was going after in this project code called COINTELPRO. Mm -hmm. Um I've, I've heard of this, but I've never really looked into it. So I don't have a deep knowledge of it, but it is a project where the FBI was doing the absolute worst of what we think of the American government doing, right? When it's, when it's acting badly, they were making up shit about people in order to destroy them. Mm. And so they made up a bunch of stories about her because she was a supporter of the black Panthers. So this ties back into network when we see that someday. And anyway, mm, so. Yeah. She was a supporter of the Black Panthers, so they went after her and made up a bunch of lies about her that she'd gotten pregnant with a Black Panther's child, you know, this sort of thing. This is the kind of thing they would do to, to destroy these people. And mm. she ended up committing suicide. Um, she lost, uh, she had a miscarriage, which her husband blamed on the stress the FBI had put on her. And then every year on the anniversary of the miscarriage, she would try to commit suicide and mm. she eventually succeeded. So... <laughs> As I say, talk about plot to us. We go from this very light comedy with someone who's, you know, really good looking and mm -hmm. does a reasonably good acting job. And all of a sudden it turns yeah. out that, oh, the FBI hounded her to her death. Okay. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So with, with that, uh, you know, uh, uprising, <laughs> uh, uprising ending there, um, is this worth watching for a modern audience? You got to make your call. <laughs> mm. Um, I think I enjoyed it as a historical artifact, but I wouldn't say not worth watching, but I'd say it's not a priority. I mean, in my, <laughs> if I were making a list of my favorite movies, this would be, you know, not in the top, probably 200. <laughs> <laughs> It was, yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad I did see it, but, um, you know, I wouldn't right. go out of my way to watch it. Yeah. I think even top 200 would be probably generous. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like, um, kind of related to what you're saying, it's, it's very appropriate for a podcast like ours because it has these actors that we've covered in other things. And it's of course, interesting to see what they did in their career, but no, you know, I did get my girlfriend to watch it with me and, you know, I would. If I had that over to do again, I would have chose something else. <laughs> I don't think that was, you know, it was fine. It wasn't like she was mm. mad at me, but, but, you know, it wasn't probably the, uh, one of the more interesting things that we could have watched. So, yeah. Yeah. So I wouldn't put it on that list. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, hopefully the next Hartnell we see after the next season, you know, we'll have, cause I mean, we were actually, I would say I would put carry on Sergeant above this. Uh, I thought the same thing. Yeah, yeah I, I can still remember a couple gags from Carry On Sergeant, and I suspect I, I'll forget just about all the gags in this. <laughs> right. Yeah, and that actually had the benefit of having a number of good characters and funny moments, even if, as a movie, 
it didn't really fully work for us. So hopefully the next one we watch after the next Hartnell season uh, will, you know, be the best one. We will see. And also, I will tell you, and I, I've played this game a number of times, and it's also one that you can play yeah. online. Cause now, you everybody... mean real di- the real diplomacy. The real diplomacy is, yes. The real <laughs> diplomacy is Henry Kissinger's favorite game. Uh, you know, I just warn people. I mean, you can lose friends over this game, right? Because <laughs> there's no randomness in the game. And, in, and, and mm-hmm. the whole process of the game is just making deals with everyone. But in order to win, you have to break some of those deals. And so people have lost friends because, you know, they betrayed them. And so I'm just going to say maybe play Monopoly or I have, you know, many other board games I could recommend, but I'm not sure I would uh, uh, go for diplomacy. (laughs) (laughs) Or uh, at at the very least, uh, take some pains to set the stage beforehand and (laughs) let people know you will be backstabbed. Yeah. Um. And this is the aside to the aside. Uh, Monopoly is a generally despised game in the board game world. Um, mm-hmm. But that's because people don't play with the actual rules. Um, mm-hmm. People add all these house rules that ruin the game and make it take forever. Um, and so also, if you play Monopoly instead of Diplomacy, play with the original rules. It'll be a short game. You'll have much more fun. <laughs> that's my... My board game PSA for for the moment. <laughs> Somewhere I have a paperback book. It's probably from the 60s or 70s. And it's like tips on playing Monopoly. And it has all kinds of fascinating strategies that are like technically within the rules of Monopoly. And it, uh, I mean, if you were, if you were playing Monopoly with people who had all read that book, I think it might be a very fascinating game. 